the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. There's a reason why you don't see today's gospel reading that we just heard from Courtney on the homepage of a lot of church websites. I mean, give up all your possessions is not the catchiest slogan. Uh, the idea to hate your whole family and your life is not the best rallying cry. It's strange what he's saying because at this particular moment, from a PR standpoint, Jesus' ministry is going well. He has momentum. He has already delivered some of his greatest material, the Good Samaritan, the parable of the sower, the mustard seed. The people have already tried to make him king after he fed 5,000 of them. He healed a boy with a demon. He's calmed a storm. He's brought a little girl back to life. So from all angles, at this point, Jesus is trending. Business is booming. But as we know from the rise and fall of so many who taste success, today's passage seems like the time when Jesus finally puts his foot in his mouth or maybe just takes things a little too far. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I mean, talk about sucking the air out of the room. If Jesus had an agent, they would immediately get him to backtrack with a statement to the effect of, it was not my client's intention to offend all of the fathers and the mothers and the husbands and the wives and the children and the brothers and the sisters of the world, i.e. everybody. What he meant to say was dot, dot, dot. To be fair, the word hate here is a Semitic expression for loving less. So Jesus is not encouraging malice or enmity. He's speaking hyperbolically, but his words are still pointed. At that time, your family was your complete support system. Your livelihood would depend on it. You most likely would be a part of the family business. If you got sick, or had a baby, or were in your old age, you would depend on your family to take care of you. So it was a fallback. It was a source of security. Maybe you can say that about your family, but either way, no matter who you are, you have your own fallbacks. Now, I'm not just talking about your savings accounts. What's the thing that you rely on about yourself after a bad day? Your life may be falling apart, but at least you have your stunning good looks, or your job, or your keen intellect, or your resume, or your Instagram followers, whatever. You fill in the blank, but Jesus is saying, I'm your fallback. I'm the only one you can really fall back on. And he then gives two illustrations, one about a builder who tries to figure out how much the project will cost before he begins to lay the foundation so he can make sure he can finish the job. He's obviously prophesying about the unfinished hotel on the downtown mall. <laughs> it's a very literal illustration. Sorry, that was a local dig. But 
Um, the other illustration is one of war, where a king determines whether or not he has the military strength to go into battle long before the first shot is fired. So what's he saying? Well, I'll tell you, but first I'll tell you what he's not saying. He's not laying out a contract with a lot of fine print. And sadly, that's often how people experience Christianity. People hear the gospel, that God actually loves them and wants a relationship with them, no matter how undeserving they are. And they say, yes, sounds great, sign me up. But then the gospel is often used as a door to get people in. And once they get to the other side of the door, they're placed at the bottom of a hill with a small boulder next to them. They're told to start pushing. They're told that now they're a Christian, they should read the Bible instead of watching season one, two, three, and four of Stranger Things. Um, or they should be practicing more self-control, but they secretly are having a hard time in that department. And so they first think, oh good, I'm in the door, I belong. But this is a really steep hill. This boulder's not getting any lighter. And when they inevitably trip and roll to the bottom, it feels less like being saved and more like being punished. This is what happens when Christianity is reduced to surface level morality that is focused on one's own behavior. It leads to a fake it till you make it approach to life where you can't be honest about your actual struggles, and then it, it eventually leads to burnout. Jesus is remarkably upfront with these two illustrations of the builder and the king, calculating the costs of their endeavors long before they break ground or fire the first shot. He's saying, look, I don't want you to waste your time here. What I have to give you is free for the taking, but it's also going to cost you everything you have. What's the price of admittance? It's one life, and it's yours. Jesus is not interested in a better you. He's interested in you, and he's interested in all of you. But the cost is high. He doesn't say, if you want to be my disciple, just do your best. No, he says, in order to be my disciple, you must take up your cross. He's not speaking metaphorically there. Today, we often talk about how we each have our crosses to bear. In Jesus' day, a cross was not a metaphor. The Romans did not see it as a symbol. It was a means of a gruesome and shameful execution. It had one purpose, and it was to kill you. So why would Jesus say this? Well, he's saying you cannot survive your own salvation. You cannot survive your own salvation. This is what makes Christianity so absurd, that the way of life is through death. 
And the Bible is full of language about dying and being raised because Christianity is not about moral improvement, but of death and resurrection. The Apostle Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Jesus' prerequisites for discipleship, give up your security, renounce your possessions, take up your cross, these things aren't supposed to inspire you to try harder. They're supposed to get you to give up, to fall on God's mercy, to die to your striving. After all, God's greatest trick is raising the dead. And it's only the dead that God is really interested in raising. So what does that mean for you right now, today? Well, it means you've been set free from the things you thought defined you. Your mother and father have influenced you, but they don't define you. Your children don't define you. Your bank account doesn't define you. Your waistline doesn't define you. Your anger doesn't define you. Your addictions don't define you. Your acts of service don't define you. Your life does not define you. Because here's the thing, this passage isn't about you at all. Who's the builder that laid the foundation that Jesus is talking about? Who's the king that has counted the cost of battle? It's him. And what's the cost? His death. To be with our most loving and perfect God, the price of admission is one life. But instead of it being yours, he paid the price up front. In his mercy, he found you to be more than worth it. He who gave up all his power, all of his possessions, He who gave up life itself in order to give you life to the full. He calls you his disciple, not because you qualify, but because he qualified you through his life, death, and resurrection. No fine print. The gospel is that which begins, sustains, and finishes the life of a Christian. So what does this look like in real terms? Well, there's a novel from 1971 called My Son is a Splendid Driver. It's a great title by William Inge about a man named Joey. And in college, Joey is head over heels for a girl named Betsy who was an aspiring actress. And she's beautiful and talented. She's she's most likely to succeed material. But she begins to scorn the snobbish social circles of her life, and she's disgraced by an ex-boyfriend, and she's outcast publicly. And afterwards, she defiantly and very bitterly leaves college, and she tries to make it on Broadway, and she and Joey lose touch. And then years later, Joey runs into Betsy at a bookstore, and she's still beautiful. But where there was bitterness, he notices a new sense of joy. And they catch up over lunch, and she tells him very openly that her life spiraled out of control in New York 
She struggled um, with some abusive relationships and addiction and, until she joined Alcoholics Anonymous. And she became a Christian. And so this is from the novel. This is what Betsy tells Joey. Once in a while, I have a few regrets, particularly when I go to the theater and I see some trollop on stage with half my talent. But I have something else that I wouldn't trade her, not for anything in the world. What's that, Joey asks. Serenity. She says in a small, sure voice that was full of humility. I found out something, Joey. I believe in God. I guess I've always believed in him, even during the wildest, craziest times in my life. But I never knew that he was waiting for me to come to him like a patient father and say, I'm sorry, I've made a mess of things. I've never understood you all these years, and I've never realized what life really was. You know something, Joey? We never learn what life is all about until we fail. It's as though I wanted all the time to become an actress just to have my own way about something. I, I don't really know what that something was. It was I who messed up my chances, I alone. I had to give up my conception of what my life was going to be, do you see? My will had to be overcome. I had to learn that there's a stronger will that works behind the entire universe that sometimes stops us in our headstrong way and says, no. And then you have to surrender to a real life, Joey, the life that's really yours. Do you understand what I mean? Or am I being too metaphysical or something? And Joey says, I think I understand something of what you mean, Betsy. I think I do. After lunch, we parted, he says, all the rest of the day. I thought of Betsy, feeling somehow I had witnessed one of Christ's miracles. And Betsy's story, which if you take the details out, it might be your story, is a miracle. It's the story of someone who crashed and burned, only to be raised up by a loving God. And make no mistake, dying to herself, dying to her own plan for her life, was a miracle, as was her recovery. And left to our own devices, we simply cannot die to ourselves. We can pray that God will help us through his spirit. And in the meantime, our hope, our only hope, is in the one who died for us. Amen.